If you've got a Bible, it's Luke 21, verses 1 to 4. And in the Church Bible, it's page 1056. 1056. And um, I'm going to be reading it in English first and then Italian, a verse at a time, to give you a little flavour of Italy. And I'm trying my very best pronuncia. Starting reading at verse 1 of chapter 21. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Poi, alzati gli occhi, Gesù vide dei ricchi che mettevano i loro doni nella casa delle offerte. He also saw a poor widow putting two very small copper coins. Vide anche una vedova poveretta che vi metteva due spicciuli. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. E disse, in verità vi dico che questa povera vedova ha messo più di tutti. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Perché tutti costoro hanno messo nelle offerte del loro superfluo, ma lei vi ha messo del suo necessario, tutto quello che aveva per vivere. Thank you, dear Lord, for these words for us today. Grazie al Signore per queste parole ci hai detto ogni, oggi, oggi. Amen. Please do keep Luke chapter 21 open in front of you. If you've closed it already, why not open it back up? If you never open it, well, anyway. <laughs> it's tempting to think of Jesus as someone we can sort of add into our lives without causing too much disruption. As though we could have what's ours already and then bolt Jesus on to give us some greater sense of security and peace and joy. But in the end, to leave our lives relatively unchanged. To leave us basically as we were. Every now and then you come to a passage in scripture that shows you how wrong we are to think like that. How deeply, how radically Jesus wants to overturn your life. You cannot just fit him in to the scheme of values, to the vision of the world that you had. To know Jesus truly is to have your world turned upside down. And in these four small verses in Luke chapter 21, we're confronted by that Jesus. On the surface, it's a pretty simple passage, isn't it? Jesus sees rich people giving, he sees a poor person giving, and he says the poor person gave more than the rich people because she gave out of her poverty. But how profound what Jesus teaches us here really is. 
And in order to see how profound it is, we, we need to look back over chapter 20. That If you've been coming here uh, recently in the evenings, you'll be familiar uh, with these passages. As we have been with Jesus in Jerusalem at the temple. He has come in triumph to Jerusalem as the conquering king, the Messiah, God's promised saviour. He's been welcomed by crowds chanting, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But not everyone is so pleased to see him. The teachers of the law say to the disciples who are, who, who are proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus rebuke them. And Jesus says, how terrible it is that you don't recognize who I am. And in the end, it will bring destruction on this great city. That you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Uh, And chapter 20 presents us with these two alternative views of who Jesus is. Uh, The religious leaders think that somehow he's an imposter and they set out to prove it. Uh, And they ask him difficult questions. The last two we've looked at uh, were uh, from verse 20 onwards, where they come and they tackle him over the question of money, particularly the paying of taxes to the Roman emperor, Caesar. Is it lawful? A vexed and intricate question, and yet Jesus answers it brilliantly, saying, look at the image on the coin. Whose image is it? Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to God, what is God's? They don't really understand what he means. They're silenced by the brilliance of his answer. And so they try another tack. They come at him with a story about a woman. She's married to a man. And according to the Old Testament law, when that man dies, she marries his brother. Well, there are seven brothers for one bride. And they say... You know, after we've worked our way through all seven, uh, whose wife will she be at the resurrection? This widow. If the resurrection is real, how can this be? Their point being, of course, there's no resurrection. It's ridiculous. Because the affairs of this life are so complicated that you cannot simply restore life to the dead. And Jesus says, you don't understand, do you? That the life to come is of a different sort from the life now. The nature and values of the kingdom of God are not simply life as you know it now, just expanded out into eternity. It is different. Those deemed worthy of resurrection will be called the children of God. I wonder whether you notice how those two questions aimed at sort of exposing Jesus as a charlatan fit with this passage in chapter 21, which is a passage about a widow and money. They come to him with a question about money, then they come to him with a question about a widow. And at the end of it all, Jesus points to a widow and says, see, she is the photographic negative of the teachers of the law. So he warns the people against them at the end of chapter 20. 
While all the peoples were listening, Jesus said to his disciples, beware of the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. These people who look like the epitome of the religious life, of of success, of, of grandeur, of importance. Jesus says they are far from the kingdom. And part of the reason they are far from the kingdom is the way that they treat widows. You see, in the ancient world, to be a widow was to be completely exposed. No one to protect you. No one to provide for you. In an economy that relied on male labor in the workplace, there are no property rights, no income, no one to look out for you. And so in the law of Moses, there's great provision made. It's emphasized time and again that the way you treat the widow really matters. The weakest, the most powerless, The poorest deserve special consideration. But the teachers of the law simply see them as easy pickings. They exploit them. They devour widows' houses. That has to have something to do with uh, the idea that they're they're somehow exploiting the process, the ancient process of probate. They're, They're taking whilst it looks like they're giving. Oh, we'll look after your affairs, don't worry. Just pop that in there for later. So to the teachers of the law, widows are a theological conundrum. An idea to be played with in order to get one over on an opponent. They're an opportunity to enrich yourself. They're despised. They're weak. They're poor. Who cares? What matters is being wealthy and well thought of. So they devour widows' houses, but for a show they make lengthy prayers. The teachers of the law act and strut about as though they were the epitome of the kingdom. But they are its photographic opposite. The widow exemplifies the kingdom of God. She gives what she has. And Jesus says it is more, what she gives is more than all the wealth he put in together. Jesus takes this weak, despised, vulnerable person and says, this is what it looks like to be a child of God. Now, when you think about the implications of that, they are earth-shattering. Because what Jesus is really saying is that the values of the world we live in, that value power and prestige and wealth, are the inverse of the values of the kingdom. God doesn't care how many letters you've got after your name. He doesn't care what you've got in the bank. He doesn't care how important people think you are. 
he cares about your heart. And so it is that Jesus can elevate the humble and cast down the proud. Now, so far, I expect you're probably coming with me and you're going, yeah, yeah, exactly, that's how it should be. But is that how you live your life? I wonder. Is that how I live mine? The sort of productivity guru, Stephen Covey, in his seven habits of highly effective people, said you have to begin at the end. You have to think about the end of your life and what you want it to be. So he says, I want you to imagine your funeral. It seems like a fairly macabre thing to do. But he says, I want you to imagine your funeral. I want you to imagine who's there. What do they say? Do they cry? What do you want your funeral to look like? You've got to build your life towards that end. Now, I have been to a lot of funerals. Some of them for people I love dearly, but most of them for people I never met. Because I'm a vicar, it's kind of my job. And I have heard hundreds of eulogies. And do you know what the eulogies are like? They did this wonderful thing. They, they achieved this great goal in their life. They were, they were impressive in the following ways. Sam and I took, uh, we recently inherited a dog, uh, and uh, we took her for a walk around Hove Cemetery. And Sam started to tease me because one of the, um, it, it, it was a, there was one grave, and on it, it had the person's name, and then it said after the person's name, PhD London. She said, is that what you want on your grave, Nick? <laughs> PhD, University of Sterling. I, I suggested that we could just save money by going for R.I. Ph.D. But um, what is it that makes you feel valuable or important? Where do you find yourself in the hierarchy of each conversation you're part of? You see, if you've grown up in English culture... You do that all the time without realizing it. Our culture is so stratified. And immediately when you meet someone, you make judgments about them on the basis of their accent, the kinds of words that they use. We ask subtle questions like, you know, what do you do for a living? Where did you go to university? Did you go to university? Did you do A-levels? And we have all these sorts of questions that help us to understand. And some of them are really highly coded. And even the nature of the question requires you to be part of the in-group. So when my dad, who is from a very different background from my mum, asked for her hand in marriage, went to my grandfather and said that he would like to propose to my mum, my grandfather looked at him my grandfather was quite an extraordinary man. He was six foot five, uh, having been born in the 1920s. So that's quite unusual. And he sort of looked down at my dad and he said, did you go to a school? <laughs> and thankfully, my father at least knew enough to know that salt ash grammar did not count as a school. But we have all these kinds of questions, all these kinds of ways of ranking ourselves. And the church... I don't know BH well enough to know whether this is true here. But the church nationally is full of it. 
We distinguish between people on the basis of their class, on the basis of their successfulness, on the basis of their wealth. Do you know what? God hates it. Because God looks on the heart. I really don't want R.I.P.H.D. on my tombstone. Because it's meaningless in the end. Jesus takes the least and says she is the greatest. Because she has given out of her poverty. He requires us radically to shift our values. To look on people not on the basis of what they have to offer, but on what the basis of what God thinks of them. I, think about it like this, if you like. Here's the widow putting her two tiny copper coins into the treasury. They, look, they're not going to make much difference as the heating bill goes up. They, they, they won't... They won't buy a single meal for a homeless person. They're of no instrumental value at all. It probably, if you were to do the sort of uh, calculations, it will probably cost the temple uh, authorities more to count that money uh, in terms of time than the money is worth. And yet Jesus says she's given more than all these rich people who've given out of their wealth. Why is that? Well... Here's an interesting question. Do you think God needs what you have to offer? Do you think God needs your money? Do you think he needs your time? Does he need your education, your experience, your skills? This is the God who spoke the entire universe into being with one word. The God to whom the cattle and sheep on a thousand hills belong, who is never short of resources. Can God build his kingdom without your riches? You bet he can. Jesus is actually turning their world upside down because they think they're the ones who give to God. And Jesus is saying, you don't understand, do you? To be a believer is to be someone who knows that they depend utterly on God. Which is why this woman is free to give all that she has to live on. She doesn't trust the money. She trusts the creator. So how do you value your life? Are you striving Desperate to get on, desperate to prove something to yourself, or to your parents, to your peers, to the kids who tease you at school. Do you think that somehow you could make yourself valuable if only you could do enough? If that's you, then I think that in this passage, what Jesus is saying to you is stop your striving. There's beautiful words that he says, aren't they? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. To really be someone 
is to be someone who has a heart for God, who worships him. You see, I don't think it's any coincidence that this occurrence happens right at the end of the story. The next thing uh, that happens in Luke is that Jesus uh, describes to his disciples the, the destruction that is coming on Jerusalem. And then he is betrayed and we're, we're into the Last Supper and the garden and to the crucifixion. This is the end of the story. And it happens in the temple. And it's no coincidence that it happens with a widow. Because right back at the beginning of Luke's gospel, it is a widow who recognizes him. Chapter 2, verse 36. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped day and night, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. All the way through this section, the question has been, who is Jesus? Can you recognize Jesus? Do you see Jesus for who he is? At the very beginning of the gospel, it is a widow who recognizes him in the temple. And then at the very end, there's a widow who is sort of the model believer at the temple. To be someone to Jesus, you don't need to be someone. And think about the prophet Anna's life from the point of view of worldly concerns. She was married for seven years and then she was a widow till she was 84. And she never left the temple. All she did was pray and worship. And yet she got to meet the Lord. That's what we know about her. What's the most valuable thing you do? All she does is pray and worship. That's the heart of the Christian life. To pray and to worship. I think one of the really hard things in our culture is dealing with getting older. It, our culture is almost a cult of youth. Where to be young is to be valued, to have potential, to have something to offer. And to be old is to be obsolete. And the older you get, the truer that feels. That's my experience in talking to people as they age. As your body starts to fail, even as your mind maybe isn't what it was, you can start to feel like you don't have anything to offer. The number of people who've said to me, I just feel useless. And yet Jesus won't let you feel that. Or at least, he won't let you go unchallenged if you say that. Because Jesus isn't interested in your capacities. He has plenty of those of his own. He is interested in you. You see, the extraordinary thing about having a God who doesn't need you 
is you have to figure out another reason for why he's got a relationship with you. If he doesn't want anything, God exists in eternity as three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, loving each other. He's not lonely. He doesn't need you for companionship. He creates the universe by speaking and upholds it by the word of his power. He doesn't need you to do things for him. He just loves you. What a different world it would be for us if we really believed that. And that, I think, is the other thing that the widow shows us. Because I think as well as showing us what the the sort of model believer looks like, the person who doesn't give what is impressive, but who gives what they have, who is willing to serve God with the little that they possess, she's a model of Jesus too. Running like a thread all the way through chapter 20 is the fact that Jesus is going to die. He's come to Jerusalem to die. That's always been why he was heading to Jerusalem. That's what he's told his disciples. And now that he is in Jerusalem, all this conflict with the Pharisees and the the teachers of the law is in the context of them wanting to kill him and of him saying, I know you're going to kill me. Look again at what he says about the widow's gift. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. She gave her life. That's essentially the picture, isn't it? She gave her life. She gave something no one else could give. Well, no one else did give. The rich people are giving great gifts. What a bounty to the temple treasury. She gave her life. And Luke is pointing to Jesus, who from this point onwards walks forward, his his doom certain, but walks forward willingly because he loves us. Willing to give his life for yours. So he elevates the widow to the point of being a model of himself. And what a glorious thing it is to know that out of his riches, the one who was rich, as the hymn puts it, beyond all splendor, yet for our sake became poor, he gave everything, the riches of heaven, the worship of angels, He came to be spat on, to be beaten, to be ridiculed, and to be murdered simply because he loved you. That has to change you. That has to change the way you look at other people, doesn't it? Every person in this room tonight who is a Christian is someone for whom that is true. Someone for whom God himself found a way to have blood so that he could shed that blood for them. How dare I treat any of you as anything less than massively significant? 
as mattering enormously. How dare any of you treat each other as less? It has to change the way we see each other, doesn't it? It gives us great confidence, great relief to know that God loves us like that. But it also shakes us to know that that's how God sees everyone else too. Who's a Christian? You know, the funny thing about the early church is they actually believed all this. And it was clear in the way that they lived. So that the church was known as the place where people who were on the edges, who had nothing, found a home. Uh, Minucius Felix was a a sort of posh Roman uh, and uh, he wrote a book describing his walk with a friend, Octavius, he'd just become a Christian uh, and uh, his other friend, Caecilius, who was a Roman snob who hated Christianity and uh, he recorded uh, their conversation and it has lasted down since AD 200 to today Uh, and this is one of the things that Caecilius had to say against the church talking about their rejection of the worship of Roman idols. He says, That men, I say, of a reprobate, unlawful, and desperate faction should rage against the gods, who, having, con- having gathered together from the lowest dregs, the more unskilled and women, credulous and by the faculty of their sex, yielding, establish a herd of a profane conspiracy, which is leagued together by nightly meetings and solemn fasts. And inhuman, and inhuman meats. And then he goes on to say this. They, res- they despise the temples as dead houses. They reject the gods. They laugh at sacred things. Wretched, they pity if they are allowed. The priests, half naked themselves, they despise honors and purple robes. Oh, wondrous folly and incredible audacity. Caeculeus says, how dare you reject all the pomp and circumstance of Roman life? How dare you reject the, 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 the priestly vestments? How dare you, you pitiful people? The Roman Empire could not get its head around the Jesus movement. It saw it as a threat and tried repeatedly and sometimes with the full machinery of the empire to wipe the church out. And yet somehow, this church of outcasts and vagabonds and poor people grew and grew. And even the Roman Empire couldn't snuff it out. So that by a by hundred years after Minucius Felix was writing this, the Roman Empire himself, the Roman Emperor himself, Constantine, felt that he had no choice but to submit to Christ if he was still going to rule his empire. God takes the things of this world that are not, that are despised, that are weak, that are foolish and poor, and uses them to overcome the greatest empire the world has ever seen. The values of God's kingdom are not like the values of the world. And so as a church... We shouldn't think that if we adopt a worldly, in that sense, approach, if we adopt worldly ideas of money and power and prestige, that we will triumph. We grow 
only as we walk in the footsteps of our Lord, who loved the dispossessed, who honoured the poor, who cared for those who were grieving. The Christian faith was never a way to get ahead, though it became so later in its history. It was a way to get to the head, to Christ, to know God, to receive his mercy, to come as a creature with nothing to offer except your need of a saviour. I wonder what impact we would have as a church in Hove if we live as if that is really true. Should we bow our heads? Heavenly Father, it is easy to say these words about valuing the unvalued, about caring for the weak and honouring the despised. But Father, our hearts so quickly revert to worldly ways of thinking and being. So naturally we love power and prestige. We want to be associated with it. And yet, the king of the universe became poor for us. And so often it was the poor who recognized him when the rich and the powerful despised him. Father, help us to see the world through the eyes of our Savior. Father, help us to honor each other equally as those for whom Christ died. And to be a place of welcome and home for those who feel pushed out and unloved and unvalued. Lord, we need your powerful work in our hearts by your spirit. Or this could never be true of us. But we so yearn to be like our saviour Jesus. Help us, we pray, in his name. Amen.